Okay, everybody hear me now? Sweet. Uh, I'm Robert Cote. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I serve with the youth. There they are over there. Yeah, how are you? Uh, all right. Um, and this is my first time preaching. Yay, as well. Oh, man. I, I didn't even have to do anything for that. That was great. Um, so if you're used to coming here, you can kind of look around and you can notice that, uh, that Rob Davis, our pastor, he's not here. Uh, neither is his wife, Liz, or, uh, or Jeff Biggers isn't here, or uh, Relly Biggers isn't here either. Uh, kind of all of the people that preach most often aren't, aren't here today. Uh, but I am, for some reason. <laughs> and, and I kind of wonder, like, why is that? Why am I preaching today? Now, it could be that kind of with all of those people gone, they're like, how far down the list of people, <laughs> you know, unavailable before they're like, how about, I don't know, the guy with all the hats? Like, we'll have him <laughs> preach. Okay, yeah, maybe. I don't think that's particularly good for my self-esteem to look at it that way. So I'll instead, I'll look at it like, if all the people who preach here the most often aren't here, who are they going to trust to take care of things in their absence? Oh, I love that, yeah. They're going to they're gonna trust the guy with all the hats. That's who they're going to trust. So uh, I will be continuing the series that Rob started last week on uh, the parables. I'm going to be going through the parable of the wicked tenants with you guys. Um, that's a, it's a great parable. It's, if you want to follow along and you got your Bible, it's, I'm going to be reading out of the version in Mark chapter 12, right at the beginning of it. Uh, it's in also Matthew and Luke. So if you have your Bible, you can follow along with me. If you don't have your Bible, we've got some up front here and here and in the back as well. Um, if you don't want to get up, and you still want to follow along, we got all of the words up on the screens, which is convenient. If you don't want to follow along on the screens, I'm going to be actually saying all of the stuff, so you can follow along that way. And if you don't want to hear me talk about it, I can't really help you, because that's what I'm here to do today. So we're going to start in chapter 12, verse 1 in Mark. Uh, in, if you have one of these Bibles, it'll be the parable of the evil farmer. So, then Jesus began teaching them with stories. A man planted a vineyard. He built a wall around it, dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice, and built a lookout tower. Then he leased the vineyard to tenant farmers and moved to another country. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent one of his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers grabbed the servant, beat him up, and sent him back empty-handed. The owner then sent another servant, but they insulted him and beat him over the head. The next servant he sent was killed. Others he sent were either beaten or killed, until there was only one left, his son, whom he loved dearly. The owner finally sent him, thinking, surely they will respect my son. But the tenant farmers said to one another, Here comes the heir to this estate. Let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. 
So they grabbed him and murdered him and threw his body out of the vineyard. What do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do? Jesus asked. I'll tell you. He will come and kill those farmers and lease the vineyard to others. Didn't you ever read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. The religious leaders wanted to arrest wanted to arrest Jesus because they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Nice story, you know, apart from the whole killing people and beating people up. Um, but like all the parables, it's not just a story like, oh, that's nice. It has a message that it's trying to convey. It has some, some somewhat hidden meaning. Not all of it is hidden, evidently, because they knew who they were talking about. You know, the religious leaders were well aware that they were the bad guys in the story. So what I want to do right now is kind of just go through this parable and just tell you exactly what does it mean for the areas that aren't so clear. The first thing is to kind of determine what is this vineyard? Like, what is it representing? And... It's actually, there's a part in the Bible that tells you exactly what it is. This is a throwback to Isaiah chapter 5. And so in chapter 5, verse 7, it says, The nation of Israel is the vineyard of the Lord of heaven's armies. The people of Judah are his pleasant garden. Sweet, we know that. The vineyard is Israel. Okay, sure. And the one who made it, that's God. I feel like that one was fairly obvious. The tenants that he leases it to, these are the religious leaders of the time from the people of Israel. The servants that he sends, those are the prophets coming to get God's share. Now, what God's share is, that's not exactly like they're trying to get like money or, or grapes in this matter, but it's kind of calling them back to obedience. Like That's what he sends his prophets to do. The son, you can guess who the son is if the owner is God. Yeah, it's Jesus. Yay. If you knew that, awesome. Great. You all get a gold star. Um, and, you know, they kill him like they were going to in this. Which leads to the moment of uh, the religious leaders, the tenants, being killed, being put to death, and the vineyard leased to other people. Uh, that represents not just those specific leaders of Jesus' time kind of getting their own, if you will, which they do. Israel does get um, kind of severely damaged in uh, about AD 70. Uh, The temple gets destroyed. The Roman army comes and mashes them all up. So it's not just that, but the whole leasing the, the vineyard to others that implies not just getting new leadership, but also the extending what it means to be a child of God. It's no longer a Israelite Jewish thing. It goes on to the Gentiles. It expands to everybody. It doesn't mean that the Israelites can't become children of God or maintain being children of God. It's just there's no longer any sense of exclusivity amongst them. So, yeah. Parable explained. Right. 
Mission accomplished. There we go. Sweet. Yeah. Oh my. All right. So we got lots and lots of extra time. So I'm just going to go through this thing just uh, three or four more times, and it'll be good, I think. We'll, we'll have it committed to memory. No, actually, like the, the reason why I'm preaching today, I like to kind of look at this parable in a different light. Right? Now, we know now explicitly what it's stating, you know, the story that Jesus is trying to, to say about, you know, the religious leaders and how things are going to change, sure. But there's also certain things that are implied about God in this story. So we can, by looking at it a different way, we can pull more information from this. So what it says about God, I believe there's three important attributes of God that are expressed in this parable. So the first of which I'd like to talk about is that God is a God of provision. It starts off with not just, here's some land and he lets people on it and do what they will. No, he sets up a whole vineyard. Okay, and it says he goes down to the detail of he dig a, he dug a pit, you know, for the pressing of the grapes, and he went on to describe other elements of that vineyard. He's set up a place already for them, which goes back as a parallel to the starting of Israel as a nation in the Promised Land. You see, when God brings them there. He brings them to a place that's all set up. If you look in, jo- uh, in Joshua 24, 13, God says, I gave you land you had not worked on, and I gave you towns you did not build, the towns where you are now living. I gave you vineyards and olive groves for food, though you did not plant them. In this whole instance, God is the one providing for them when they arrived in the promised land. Everything was set up. There was no major construction project for them. Everything was already there because God had provided for it. And he didn't just provide the means to, you know, to provide food for themselves. Sure. He also provided protection in them. It says in the vineyard that he made a lookout tower and he built a wall. He's not only allowing them a means to get by, but he's also protecting them which that protection enables them to prosper. Geographically, that goes to where Israel is located. It's got a sea on one side of the Mediterranean. It has the River Jordan. There's a lot of mountains. It's, it's, geographically, it's very defensible. Right? In the book of Job, actually, um, Satan compares he mentions the protection that God provides and his provision all in one breath. He says, you have always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You have made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. God didn't just do that to Job. He did that to the nation of Israel as well. So God is a God of provision. Sure, we can see that in there. He's also a God of mercy. You can tell that by noticing how many servants he sent to get his share of the crop. He didn't just send one. 
had he sent one and they beat him over the head and sent him away, he's got full rights to, okay, well, I'm gonna send troops in there, I'm gonna get rid of those guys and lease it out to new tenants. Uh, I can only imagine what would happen if my landlord wanted the rent and uh, she sent one of her sons up. And was like, no, uh, I'm sure the cops would be called right away. That's, that only makes sense. If, if I was in God's shoes, yeah, that's one servant, that's all it would take. But that's not the way that God operates. God is a God of mercy. He sends servant after servant, giving them chance after chance, trying again and again to, hey, like, I want you guys to get this, so I'm giving you the opportunity to make it right. Even after some instances where they kill their, the servants, God's still giving opportunities. In the same way, the prophets that he sent are beaten. Some of them are killed. This is an instance where you have John the Baptist, one of the last real prophets of that age. He's got his head cut off. You know, They're not handling their situation particularly well. Um, to kind of outline another instance of God's mercy is comparing them to when they were going through the wilderness. You see, in the wilderness, they were messing up again and again and again, and God was giving them more and more opportunities, despite not really deserving any opportunities. The things that they complained about to God were real ridiculous. He said, you know, don't, don't work on the Sabbath. Like, leave that, rest, you know, worship, but don't work on it. Some guy was gathering sticks. Why? Why do you need to gather sticks when you have the God who created you and provided for you around you? You don't need sticks to light a fire if God himself is there as a pillar of flame at night. That's pointless. They have food literally raining from the sky, and yet, ah, Lord, there's no meat. Why? Why? Come on. I mean, you can't have this. Give me some meat. And he does. He provides meat for them and continually gives them an opportunity that it's, it's spoken of in the Psalms. It says, yet he was merciful and forgave their sins and did not destroy them all. Many times he held back his anger and did not unleash his fury. It's not to say that God's like a pushover. He, you know, he keeps it in check, though, because he wants to be merciful because he loves us. So besides God being a God of provision and God being God of mercy, he's also a God of justice. See, we all have our own interpretation of what it means to be just, of what justice in a given circumstance would be. The religious leaders actually had their own sense of justice too. In the version that's told in, uh, in Matthew, Jesus doesn't answer the question of what happens to the tenant farmer. He asks the religious leaders. You know, he's like, well, what's, what's going to happen to them? And so in Matthew 21, verse 41, the religious leaders replied, he will put the wicked men to a horrible death and lease the vineyard to others who will give him his share of the crop after each harvest. 
See, they had a sense of what it meant for justice, for each person getting what they deserve. The tenant farmers would get death, and the owner of the vineyard would get tenants who would give him the crop. That's their sense of justice. Unfortunately, they didn't quite realize that the, the owner of the vineyard was capable of enforcing that justice. God absolutely is capable of that. Now, we can look at justice and look at God and get kind of confused. Um, I would say the best word is because we see, with our perception of what justice is, we see what we perceive to be injustice all around us. Um, why, is, why is that happening? Why is that person getting away with that? You know, why not me? Things of that nature. When you look at recently in the news, the, the shooting in Charlotte, you know, and things of that nature, it, one has to wonder what is god doing how is how is god you know pursuing and maintaining justice now i wish i had like this awesome answer for you guys to just be like oh yeah well he's letting this happen because he's going to do this and there you go and that would be nice but i'm not equipped to understand the economy of god in relation to mercy and justice not at all um but I will say that there's a person in the Bible that puts it, I think, pretty well. Uh, in the book of Job, there's a guy by the name of Elihu, who is one of my favorite people in the Bible. See, after all of the bad stuff happens to Job, and you know his, his friends come to comfort him, uh, once they're all done, Elihu kind of steps off and he's like, all right, well, I've, I've heard enough. Now I'm going to tell you guys about like what's really going on and give you real wisdom. Uh, and what Elihu says to Job is, but you are obsessed with whether the godless will be judged. Don't worry. Judgment and justice will be upheld. See, we can all rest assured that Judgment and justice will be upheld because the one who's going to do that is God. He's the God of justice, and that's his domain, and he will uphold justice, whether it comes here in this life or in the next. He's, he's absolute in this, and it's our job not to worry. If it is kind of... Uh, too burdensome for you, I would say, this this issue of God's justice. I'd say go to him about it. He's not he he's big enough and strong enough. He can handle your questions. He can handle your doubts of, you know, what are you doing here, God? You know, often he he'll comfort you on this and kind of reassure you of who he is. You may not get the answer that you necessarily want, but as long as you know who God is and, and God's mindset towards justice and that it will be upheld, everything will work out. So 
that's cool. Yeah, all right, we got a good story, you know. We got a, um, we understand its implications that Jesus gives, okay. We look at it a different way, and we've got a greater perspective on God and his various attributes, being a God of provision, being a God of mercy, and being a God of justice. Okay, sure, that's cool. Um, but at the end of the day, when we read any part of the Bible, we want us to we want it to affect us kind of where we are now. Um, if if this book is the living word of God, it should be able to affect us where we are right now, no matter where we are right now. And I think it does that, and I think this parable in particular does that. So once again, I'd like to look at this a different way. You see, we know that in the way Jesus told it, the the vineyard was, you know, the nation of Israel or the, the people of God. I would say that we should look at it as if our own personal lives are the vineyard. Because we know that God made us, you know, God set us up, you know, in different areas and different situations, different walks of life, sure. But that the source of it all was God. So our lives would be the vineyard that God created. And we ourselves are the tenants of that vineyard. We are all, unfortunately, guilty of turning away God's messengers, whether they're actual people or the word of God itself. But we're all guilty of, in some form or another, when God asks of us, we say no. And I'd like us to kind of look back at our lives and look where we are right now and say, where am I turning away God's messengers? Where am I saying, no, I know you've asked for your share, but no, I'm, I'm not giving it. I'm keeping it for myself. This could be any number of things, really. I mean, it could be a physical thing, like a tithe and offering that you're withholding for. But it could be something intangible. It could be, you know, your energy, your time, your talents that you have. I know in my personal experience, there has never been an opportunity where I could have been faithful and obedient and I chose to do so and regretted it later. Never happened. Oh, God has always been the right choice. But I think it extends to more than just myself. You see, if I'm obedient, sure, that's great for me. But it extends then to other people. You see, with the parable of the wicked tenants, when the the vineyard is leased to other people, that's as we covered earlier, that's representative of it opening up to the Gentiles as well. Paul in Romans 
kind of combines those things of being obedient and kind of the fruit that it brings to other people. In Romans uh, chapter 11, verse 12, Paul says, Now if the Gentiles were enriched because the people of Israel turned down God's offer of salvation, think how much greater a blessing the world will share when they finally accept it. So your, your obedience to God and giving him his share, yeah, it's great for you, but it can extend to be a blessing to others as well. So whether it becomes later on today or this week, or even you know, uh, in prayer right after this service, I'd like you to ask yourself, where, where am I saying no to God? Where am I turning away his, his servants? Um, and that's kind of it for me. I'm going to leave you with that. Uh, we are going to transition into uh, communion. Yeah, com communion is really special time. Communion means a lot of things to different people. Um, to me, it's it's a chance to get close to God. Really simple. Um, and as you look at what happened at the Last Supper, I look upon communion as the whole Last Supper, not just receiving of the when he gave bread and he gave wine as emblematic of his body and blood. The whole Last Supper, communion. So he was really teaching a lot during the Last Supper about communion. What does communion really mean? And I, I'm, I'm called to these um, verses here. It's uh, when Jesus was coming toward Peter. Uh, the king of kings was going to wash the feet of Peter. And this big, tough um, fisherman was seeing Jesus coming toward him. And it, here's a verse he says. And he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Then Peter said to him, You shall never, never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Have you ever had anyone wash your feet? What, what are your feelings when you see someone coming to wash your feet. Maybe you don't know the person very well. A lot of things are in your minds right now, isn't it? But there's a little bit of, if you can say, the word humiliation involved when someone comes towards you and realizing you have to submit, in a sense, to them washing your feet. Well, this was Peter's dilemma here. This big, tough fisherman saw the king of glory coming toward him. And Peter knew that he was supposed to be washing Jesus' feet. It wasn't supposed to be this way. But Peter says right off, you'll not wash my feet. And Jesus says, you know, Peter, you've got to allow me to do this today. You have to allow this humiliation. Because I really need to know that I've got you. 
I need to know that you're really going to be the man I'm going to call out to lead, to lead my, uh, my next work here. So the whole point is that Jesus was saying to Peter, Peter, will you let me get this close? Will you really allow this humiliation and let me really get this close to you today? And men, we receive today the emblems of his body and blood. May we come and realize that Jesus wants to get that close to you today. And as you receive and as you have your prayer time and as you're receiving, just feel his presence so very close to you because his desire is to get that close to you today. So please come when you're ready. We have stations here. And do we have them in the back too? And in the back. So please come and receive as you will. And just know how close Jesus wants to be with you today.